Hey everyone, back again. Today we're going to start Jack Halberstam's In a Queer Time and Place uh, because I've never read Halberstam's work and I'm fascinated with this stuff. So definitely a content warning. A lot of this is going to be discussing violence against uh, trans people and other queer identifying people and really describing, uh, not in any detail, but just that it's going to be a part of these episodes uh, given that this is part of the reality of being a queer person in North America. So how this is going to be broken down is part one that I'm going to do is going to cover chapters one and two. Part two is going to cover chapters three and four. Part three is going to cover just part uh, chapter five. And then part four is going to cover chapters six and seven, just so you know. And before jumping into it, hi, I'm David. I explain philosophical concepts and ideas and ways to make them accessible to you. So if you're new here, like, share, subscribe. Go see my more than 300 episodes I already have up. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but no pressure to do that. If you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineo or on TikTok at theory philosophy. If you found this as a podcast, you're going to be able to find it on YouTube for there's no video for this, but it's on YouTube. Or if you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find it as a podcast. And if you're into that, so you can just download it and enjoy wherever you'd like. If you can leave a review wherever you get it as a podcast, it would that'd be good for me. Uh, and uh, yeah, so let's start Jack Halberstam's In a Queer Time and Place, Transgender Bodies, Subcultural Lives with Chapter 1 and then Chapter 2, and then this episode will finish and we will all leave smarter. So well, this text is super important for queer and trans studies. Definitely, it's it's important philosophically in my mind, in that it calls into question our conceptions of time and space, or time and place. Uh, but there are parts of this text that are, to some degree, outdated, uh, because this text is like 20 years old. So there are some of the language isn't really used now, and some of the concepts are, are a little outdated. And I'll, I'll mention those, but like the thing is that Halberstam really was, was a pioneer with this stuff. Halberstam was um, way ahead of his time uh, with this, and uh, there's like no, there's no real criticism one could level. Uh, but there are some parts where um, I think I'll highlight some of the differences in the way that these discussions and ideas are approached today by some academics. But yeah, let's jump into chapter one, queer temporality in postmodern geographies, which is very uh, fancy terms. And I'll try to explain it as clearly as possible so you know what's going on. So queer temporality in postmodern geographies is referring to, uh, as far as queer temporality goes, referring to a different perspective on the progression of time from a straight conception of time, the kind of time that uh, heteronormative people experience, where how the traditional script goes is that you go through childhood, likely in a somewhat middle-class setting, and then you uh, go through adolescence, you're a pain in the ass for your parents, then you get, uh, you might get educated in university, then you get a job, and then you get a partner, and then you have the 2.3 kids, and then you get the house, and then you get the white picket fence, and then you get the dog, you have to walk at 5 a.m. every morning, and then you get, so <laughs> then, then you come up to retirement, and then you retire, and then that's, you know, that is the script and not everyone follows it, obviously, but this common rhythm of life has become the normal 
uh, not because it is the most common, but because it is the one that's most reflected in popular culture. So popular culture very much draws upon this script. Much of what we see in Hollywood cinema refers to this script and just holds this script in the background of all of the narratives. Whereas a queer temporality calls into question this progress, this movement, and proposes alternative ways of conceptualizing one's lifetime. Not lifetime, but lifetime. Time in your life. What happens? What are the milestones? How are you supposed to act at certain periods of your life? What jobs are you supposed to have? Are you supposed to have jobs? Everything like that. And then postmodern geographies is referring to a change in the way that borders and identities are understood, where there isn't a totalizing idea about what it means to be uh, queer, what it means to be, or that everyone is just heteronormative, everyone's just straight. It is proposing different ideas about the spaces that people occupy. Where do people go to mingle? Where do people go to interact? So with all of this is revealed the extent to which the time is not universal. We all live in time, but the way that that time unfolds is not going to be the same for everybody. Similarly with space, people are going to have very different relationships to time and space, especially for queer people who are often denied entry into certain spaces and welcomed into others and who often live on different time scripts for their life. So for Halberstam, against these normative institutions of the family, of heteronormativity, of reproduction, there is queer time and there is queer space. So to be queer then is about more than one's sexual desires. It's not just about who you're physically or emotionally attracted to. It has to do with an entire repudiation, either directly or indirectly, of so much more of what we know about our lives. To be queer is to follow Foucault's, in, in Foucault's words, at least in Foucault's text um, titled Friendship as a Way of Life that I've covered if you're interested in that. To be queer means to really craft one one's own way beyond much more than your sexual desire. It is to craft an entirely new way to exist in the world that is often prosecuted and persecuted and policed in our world. So to be queer for Haberstam means to exercise subcultural practices, alternative methods of alliance, forms of transgender embodiment, and those forms of representation dedicated to capturing these willfully eccentric modes of being. Which, it, but it's important to say that there, it, there are, there's such a thing as homonormativity as well. It's important to identify that even queer people can follow certain uh, normative scripts, not because uh, it's just like a capitulation to a system that hates uh, these people, but it's a matter of survival in a lot of cases where people still need to adopt these scripts in order to not experience harm. Or in some cases, they just like it, in which, in which case that's fine too. So queer time, as a different progression to straight time, was most clearly displayed during the AIDS crisis and the AIDS epidemic in the United States, where gay and lesbian people were suddenly disallowed a future, where there so many gay people were dying that it, it completely called into question what it meant to think about the future, where if you were not straight, this future was 
bleak or non-existent for you. So there was a hyper-focus on the present, on living for the moment, not for the future, given that uh, this crisis was, it was, it was a horrible, like, forest fire that was just destroying gay communities with very little attention from the scientific and governmental communities. Now, in the absence of these possible futures, you know, this fear that you're, you, you might not have a future, queer subcultures emerged as a way to envision new futures that didn't necessarily abide by standard scripts. However, we must be careful here, you know, not to homogenize all of these subcultures or this experience of queer time. For black and indigenous uh, queer people, for example, they experience uh, queer time, queer space, very differently than white uh, gay people or white lesbians or white non-binary people. So part of this book is an effort to imagine queer time away from its monopolization by white queer subjects. So there is a bias, and this will come out throughout the course of this text, there is a bias even within queer scholarship towards often urban white gay people, mostly urban white gay men, and their experiences being reflected in popular culture in those moments where queer lives are presented at the expense of lesbian people or black queer people uh, and so on. And so we see that even within this community, there has to be a concerted effort to include voices that are often even uh, disallowed, often uh, dispermitted from entering many arenas, even within the queer community, because there are holdovers of racism and sexism even within these communities at times. So it's important to identify that. And this text is an effort to really uplift those voices. Now, whether or not Halberstam is really effective at that is another question, uh, given that even in the text itself, all of the examples that Halberstam uses really reflect white people. Uh, much of the art and filmography that uh, Halberstam looks at is by white people, overwhelmingly so. Uh, so, you know, it's, importantly to, it's important to keep that on the back burner, even though Halberstam is definitely making some important inroads here in criticizing the whiteness and white supremacy even within queer communities. So to consider these alternative voices is to consider the postmodern possibility of this situation that we find ourselves in, or at the time, in the late 90s, early 2000s, to think about this opening up of new possibilities for different people to speak and to uh, for their lives to be reflected in popular culture, Halberstam associates this with a postmodern turn. A postmodern turn, what I mean by that, is the change in the way that people understood their relationships to their uh, to, to the world and to their society, where there was often before this a dominant adherence to white culture, to white problems being reflected in uh, film and in television and literature. And suddenly there was this turn and this opening up of voices to other people. Now this opening up revealed that people experienced a lot more oppression than just class-based oppression. So class-based oppression was really, you know, from Marxism, was really the primary force of oppression 
in our world. And then as people from differing perspectives, from different backgrounds, with uh, increased immigration, with the access of uh, more than just white people into academic circles over time in the 20th century, suddenly class wasn't the only determining uh, kind of evil in our society. Suddenly discussions about racism, about sexism, about the intersection of both racism and sexism and how they affect certain people suddenly became considered as well. And so too were these problems starting to be reflected in cinema and music in literature. And so there was this opening up of considerations of oppression. Now this is broadly just branded as postmodernism. And people have used this to criticize postmodernism for distracting us from the primary evil that is capitalism. So there are thinkers like Frederick Jameson, who in uh, his text, The Cultural Logic of Postmodernism, essentially makes this point that these concerns, concerns about racial representation on uh, in film and television, about considerations of racism, of sexism, these are cultural concerns that are produced by the more tangible, real economic concerns, that is capitalism's exploitation. So these types of people who often align themselves with Marxists include others like David Harvey as well, brush off these other perspectives as being only uh, problems that exist within the superstructure that only exist at the cultural level and don't exist really meaningfully in everybody's lives. So Haberstam is saying that they see the value in these types of criticisms of postmodernism because Halberstam recognizes capitalism's uh, oppressive direction in our world. But Halberstam also recognizes that sexual oppression, that racism and sexism are also fundamental oppressors in this world, and they need to be treated as seriously as class-based oppression. So to give a little bit more of a definitional understanding of queer time here, keeping these ideas in mind. Queer time is a term for those specific models of sexuality that emerge within postmodernism once one leaves the temporal frames of bourgeois reproduction and family, of longevity, of risk and safety, and inheritance. Whereas queer space refers to the placemaking practices within postmodernism in which queer people engage as queer counterpublics. And in all of this, queerness refers to the non-normative logics and organizations of community, sexual identity, embodiment, and activity in space and time. So non-normative being non-heterosexual or, or bending the rules of heterosexuality would include uh, non-monogamy, would include um, you know being attracted to many different people, not just assigning oneself being attracted to one single gender, and so on, that break away from the limits of monogamous heterosexuality with, you know, getting the 2.3 kids in my, in, in your life, with the, with the fence, with the house, with the paved, with the two-door garage, and, and all of that goodiness. So instead of just viewing all of these things as products of the broader form of oppression within capitalism, Haberstam is looking at queer time and queer space as a way to actually oppose capitalism and many of the other logics that it accompanies, including just overarching oppression of time, 
making sure people are where they need to be all the time, the oppression of knowledge, where people are just assumed to have certain characteristics or they're assumed to follow uh, certain ideas about proper human conduct, and they break away from that. Now, this idea about shifting time or time being organized according to hegemonic purposes or oppressive purposes is not new. Halberstam is not offering a new thesis here. Even among those Marxists like David Harvey or Frederick Jameson, they acknowledge that capitalism does this in, in itself. It creates these rhythms of life that people are expected to adopt and adhere to where you must wake up at this hour for your alarm clock to sit in traffic for an hour, to go to work for nine hours, to sit in traffic for an hour, go home for two hours at, to shower and eat and then go to bed and do it all again. And you're expected to follow this rhythm of life that David Harvey and Frederick Jameson suggest is totally artificial. And indeed it is. Like, it's a very strange thing we do. And it's entirely constructed. But nevertheless, we adopted as though it's normal. So this idea about time being alterable, changeable, uh, is not reserved for queer studies at all. However, these thinkers only reduce time's construction to the forces of capitalism, where they don't consider the other factors here, like sexism, where there's this expectation that women are supposed to uh, give birth like in their early 20s, like this is their prime, this expectation on them which doesn't necessarily go down capitalistic lines, even though you can draw lines of affiliation between capitalism's interests and the oppression of women in this sense, of course. Uh, but it also reflects uh, a sexist desire to maintain control over women's bodies and their identities, reducing them to the status as only uh, mothers, that they are just baby makers. And so without considering this, Harvey and Jameson offer an interesting thesis about capitalism's effects on our lives, on our day-to-day -day lives. But without considering these other things, they largely normalize this experience and they, uh, they try to universalize it when actually there are all these other things going on. So these Marxists really ignore the local, specific experiences of people in favor of the global and they refuse to engage with bodies, with people, their desires, with spaces at the local level because they just brush it off. They're like, that's not important. We got to think about the big picture here. Uh, that is capitalist exploitation, which is very reductive and doesn't really get at the heart of all of these other factors, all of these other forces. So for example, queer people have often experienced capitalist oppression very differently than non-queer people. So like, in um, in the 1980s, New York went through, or 70s and 80s, New York City went through massive transformations as uh, with industrialization kind of winding down with offshoring, with uh, really resonating with uh, Thatcherism, this sudden shift in the way that markets were organized where much production started to be sent to or acquired from other countries overseas where cheap labor could be acquired. And it became about individual responsibility at this time and corporations were just trying to make uh, as much money as possible while paying as little as possible. And this created lots of poverty in New York, in the United States. And so there were like all of these new subcultural spaces emerging largely 
by a demand for survival. Like people needed places to go because they were losing their houses. They needed people, a community to attach themselves to because they weren't being accepted by the church. That definitely wasn't the case. They didn't have uh, any kind of government funding hosting community programs or anything. So they had to form their own communities. And so there was this emergence of subcultural identities and spaces in New York at this time. So this was all really like, even from the government side, like the government was doing much to try to encourage quote unquote public safety by investing money into the city spaces. But much of the planning was done to reflect white middle class and upper class interests, not those of people who were pursuing and trying to craft, um, you know, their own subcultural lives. Now, we're not only going to focus on cities here. As we will uh, look at later in the text, we're going to look at the case of Brandon Tina, who is um, a trans man who is killed uh, for being trans. And like, it's going to be so obviously horrible. But in looking at this, Halberstam pays attention to the ways in which there are queer communities, even in rural settings, and their experiences are often erased in favor of uh, urban queer people's experiences. Now, in the case of Brandon Tina and Halberstam will also talk about Matthew Shepard. Brandon Tina was a trans man murdered in Nebraska, but of this... Um, who uh, Halberstam says embodies, uh, Brandon embodies an earlier model of gay identity as gender inversion, space for existing in a rural space, which is like being gay. Uh, Brandon wasn't gay as far as we know, uh, that is recorded. Uh, Brandon was um, attracted to cis women, so heterosexual in that sense. But being a trans man definitely doesn't belong to the heteronormative framework in the way that he experienced such uh, like unimaginable violence in his life. So this experience pulling him apart from just the heteronormative experience of cis men, they don't have to deal with this extra layer of oppression that, and violence that Brandon did. So this language is, you know, it is, it is what it is. However, however, Halberstam is also critical of why this case, in the case of Brandon Tina and also of Matthew Shepard, and again, we're not there yet. We're going to talk about it more as we go on. But Halberstam is also skeptical or maybe suspicious of the attention that these two uh, people received. And it's really because, or Halberstam hints that uh, it's because they were white. In these settings would a black trans man have received as much attention likely not so throughout the course of this text and this is really one of the uh, really genius parts of this text is that halberstam is always kind of sitting on a fence very deliberately because halberstam is always prepared to criticize the thing that he's he celebrates so he celebrates queer subcultures, but then criticizes them for, uh, you know, being racist and being sexist, like clearly, uh, also criticizing or like celebrating the lives of Brandon and, um, Matthew, but also being critical of the overt attention that they received or identifying these other interests. So he's also critical of like, even 
the flexibility and ambiguity assumed by many queer subcultural spaces and times because they often adhere to or they are mirroring the logics of late capitalism that itself always wants to twist and bend. So Hopperstam is aware that there might be this mirroring going on here, this copying of these oppressive institutions and many of their logics within these queer subcultures. So Halberstam is always, always maintaining a critical eye, always being on edge, which is, I think, important and very informative as to avoid having these new communities just replicating the oppressive ones that they are largely a response to. You know, they were often created to get away from that type of oppression, and it's messed up if they just replicate that oppression. So gender is easily commodifiable. Like, there's no denying that. And it has is something that has been co-opted by corporations in order to sell products, which have been acquired through cheap labor overseas. And we see how this piggybacking on gender identity and an emerging understanding about gender is used to encourage further capitalist exploitation. Now, at the same time, Halberstam isn't ready to repudiate gender. And to say like, oh, it's just commodifiable by capitalist interests, therefore we have to try to get beyond gender in a kind of gender critical way. To say that, oh, I'm not interested in gender identity, I'm just interested in whoever I'm interested in, gender's just a construct, we should just be focused on our attraction to people. Uh, Halberstam isn't convinced because like many people's, like people don't choose their identities in most cases, if not all cases, and uh, they can't just you can't just renounce your identity. And this idea largely is motivated by just how normative heterosexual identity is in that these types of discussions never emerge when it is about uh, straight people. To say that, oh, I'm not interested in, you know, uh, anyone's gender, I'm just interested in whoever I'm interested in. It, this conversation only seems to emerge at a time in which queer identities have risen in prominence, or at least in the public eye, which is, raises some suspicion for me. Like, okay, why is it only a concern now, this gender criticality, criticality, being critical of gender, of, unless, of course, it is really a reaction to all of these emerging genders, and it's a way to oppose those emerging genders. And by emerging, I mean emerging in public, in the public eye. Like they were always there, of course, but really becoming more prominent in the public eye. So Haberstam doesn't want to repudiate identity politics because identity and identity politics are often ways of forging communities and community bonds in a world hostile to those identities and those communities. So the point of this book is to move beyond queer communities' claims to uniqueness or unilateral oppression and beyond the binary division of flexibility or rigidity. In the case of transgenderism, in Halberstam's words, it is about seeing it as both a promise for gender liberation and possibly the sign of reincorporation of a radical subculture back into the flexible economy of postmodern culture. So what we hear here is that here here, what we hear in these words for Halberstam or from Halberstam is both that suspicious eye and an optimistic one, but maintaining both, maintaining that tension. And that puts us here into chapter two, titled The Brandon Archive. And uh, really, this is the first of many examples in this text 
of Halberstam committing to or contributing to a queer archive. So an effort to accumulate the stories of and stories by queer people so that there is some kind of record and an understanding of these communities so they don't just disappear to the sands of time. So they do maintain, they do get maintained. So to engage here with the memories of Brandon Tina as an archive means to open an engagement with the material and phantasmatic investments in the figure who stands enigmatically for a generation or community of the lost. So here by looking at the case of Brandon Tina, who was a trans man who was murdered in Nebraska, means using this person as a way to understand a community that they were a part of beyond just understanding their lives. So like I said, we're going to be talking about violence here in no uh, great detail. If you do want to know the details, you can look it up um, if you were so compelled. But just so you know, we will be talking about violence. So when Brandon Tina was murdered, uh, fighting ensued between trans and lesbian and gay communities over who was supposed to be the most affected by this, this horrible crime. There was almost an oppression Olympics occurring as to who could lay claim to Brandon's memory and who could use Brandon in their community's archive, like as a symbolic uh, addition to that community's experience. So what happened was Brandon and his two friends, uh, who one of which was one of his, um, was a woman as a friend or a girl, uh, their, her age, I'm not sure, I should know. And uh, he also had a black friend who happened to also be disabled. And these two people often get erased in the narrative. And Halberstam will really call attention to this because one of them being uh, a disabled black man was, it's very curious that he didn't get as much attention as Brandon, even though it's obviously horrible as well. So their murder sparked the creation of an archive that catalogs a set of comforting fictions about queer life in small town America. So they're in Nebraska, like flyover state, right? Who, who goes to Nebraska? Like there's nobody there. <laughs> that's, that's, I'm sorry. If, I've never been to Nebraska. Maybe I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't insult Nebraska. I've never even been there. Uh, I'm sure it's amazing. So there was also an interest in Hollywood with the film Boys Don't Cry, if you've seen that with uh, Hilary Swank, um, which is essentially about Brandon. And there was also a documentary about his life. And then there were, there were so many other things, news reports, news segments about it, books, zines, like so much has sprung up to understand Brandon's life and death. Now, in both of these cases, both the film Boys Don't Cry and the documentary film about the life of Brandon Tina, both of them reduce this Brandon's experience and Brandon's death as just a case of rural homophobia. It essentially goes that people living in rural America are like uneducated, xenophobic, they just hate gay people, and we can just wipe our hands of this issue because we know that that's what had happened here. It was just a case of homophobic violence or anti-queer violence propagated by some, um, you know, uneducated country folk against these people. When Halberstam is like, 
no, that's that's really messed up because it's, it doesn't, you know, there are so many queer communities in rural circles that live just fine in their communities and actually have good bonds with their communities or like the broader normative communities, and there's no issue. There's a lot more going on here. And even this desire to just write off this experience as an example of, or these horrible events as, an, as examples of um, country violence against non-straight people uh, reduces the issue just grossly. So Haberstam really wants to go beyond all of this and beyond the proclamations by some gay and lesbian circles about the significance of the event for them, like, is this something that the gay community has to attach themselves to? Is it something the trans community has to lay claim to? Haberstam isn't interested in settling those debates. Haberstam just doesn't seem too interested in those debates at all, or those discussions at all. Instead, Haberstam wants to really consider the significance of a trans man existing in a, such a setting and courting and being attracted to and having many cis women partners. So this is something that completely called into question the foundations of masculinity upon which much of rural America is based. So in doing this, Halberstam is resisting some of those other explanations from queer communities that uh, Brandon was just cast as some like backwards, uh, just uh, confused a guy about his sexuality really being homosexual, uh, which is just transphobia, in case you were curious, just reducing Brandon to his uh, the uh, gender he was assigned at birth, and then saying that because of that and him being interested in women, he was just a lesbian secretly. Uh, and this is really something that comes up in the film Boys Don't Cry, but we're going to talk about that in the next chapter. Uh, for now, Halberstam just wants to problematize all of these readings. They're just complete. They're all transphobic. They're just completely erasing Brandon's identity as a man. And that just being the end of the equation. So additionally, Halberstam adds that Brandon also serves as a marker for a particular set of late 20th century cultural anxieties about place, space, locality, and metropolitanism. So in the case of the Brandon Tina story, which is the documentary about Brandon's life, it depicts Nebraska and its people as desolate, as empty, as uninteresting. The film then works to confirm the superiority of urban queer identities and er people who live in the cities as being more intelligent. Uh, you know, they, they contrast the two people in cities being more welcoming, being more understanding, whereas people in the country are just unwelcoming uh, just, I, I need a thesaurus today. They, they just are not welcoming people. So the film then also suggests that, uh, like this is all taken as evidence of Brandon's ignorance. If only like essentially victim blaming where the documentary goes like, how could Brandon have un like lived here with all of these country folk, you know, essentially making it is his own fault for being murdered saying like, oh, he should have just left and gone to the city like all the other queer folk. But that totally ignores uh, the presence of queer people in urban spaces and how some queer folks need to stay closer to home in order to preserve their difference, which is part of their identity. Now, this is uh, the, th the thing that underwrites some of this text is the idea that like being trans is like a deliberately political statement 
that people would want to stay in these communities to maintain their difference. When like being trans in a lot of cases is people wanting not to be different. They're wanting to fit in uh, to whatever role that they feel is best for them. Like in the case of a trans man, just wanting to be a man. And we can't like leave it at that for some reason. We always have to mark it as being like different then when ideally it would just be an acknowledgement of this identity and nothing more than that. But in any case, there's so many reasons why queer people don't just leave their rural settings. I guess where the family is, they might have friends there. There might be a great queer community. Uh, and that's just, that's just the way it is. And that's great. So Brandon, like his masculine identity very much resonated with masculine identity in that place in rural Nebraska. So it just like it made sense. Now, according to Halberstam, Brandon could then be read as confirming and challenging such rural masculinity, which like needs some unpacking because the assumption being that Brandon is almost failing to pass as a man. And this is always on the back burner here. Uh, and it requires some interrogating in that there is this assumption that being trans means that you're just always going to be seen as this aberration when there are trans people who pass really well, which opens up a whole set of other considerations, what it means to pass. Passing means adhering to what kind of masculine, in the case of a trans man, masculine identity, which opens up a whole other uh, set of issues. But in any case, there's this assumption here that Brandon was not passing. And so therefore, Halberstam says Brandon was then challenging this masculinity because people could tell that Brandon was not uh, was not a cis man or was believed to be homosexual, but was attracted to women and was quite a successful at gaining the attraction of women as well. So all of these men were like in that in Brandon's vicinity was like they're like why does this person get all the women when us real men don't get all the women, which is how Halberstam is framing this situation or what was going on there. Now, in all of this as well, Halberstam identifies that one of uh, Brandon's murder murderers and murderer of two of Brandon's friends as well, um, one of them was a white supremacist. And we're going to talk about this more later, but this part of the murderer's life was just totally erased and totally ignored, which is super interesting in that there's an olive branch extended to the perpetrators where they are humanized while Brandon is dehumanized, treated as an aberration, like treated as uh, in need of like medical attention, whereas being a white supremacist is very much normal in uh, the American cultural imagination. And this just really should encourage us to ask like, okay, uh, the murder of Brandon's friend, Philip, who is the disabled black man, like if there, if a white supremacist was responsible here, like clearly we have to consider this, but Philip's memory was never really considered in great detail. So when this event happened, Halberstam too quickly blamed, like everyone else, rural spaces for contributing to it. After being called out on stage and Halberstam reflects on an experience giving some talk uh, at, at somewhere that someone called Halberstam out on it and was like, you know, you can't just 
broad stroke rural communities as all being like backwards and unwelcoming. So this encouraged Jack to reflect on his bias. So we often have a rosy image of urban life for queer people, but it is a very hostile space, especially for queer people of color. Like it's not always nice for these communities. Now to actually engage with this event means to engage with the archive of facts, testimonies, depictions of Brandon, his friends, his killers, his family, his girlfriends, his town, etc. It means acquiring as broad a picture as possible from as many different perspectives as possible to best understand the situation. And this archive reveals how little we know about the forms taken by queer life outside of metropolitan areas. Like what does queer rural life look like? Uh, and I know that some people have, uh, I know some people who've studied this and it's super interesting, like the types of communities that people forge in rural settings that is often just ignored in favor of uh, urban ones. Queer studies has often ignored this in favor of urban, uh, urban queer experiences. So Hoverstam suggests that such an archive might reveal points of contact in violent treatment or gen of gender nonconforming people and people of color, color in rural America. So this is what's called metronormativity, this um, treating urban experiences from metropolitan places as being the only experience, universalizing those experiences as the experiences of all queer people. So it's universalized uh, to such an extent that it makes urban spaces seem like magically more welcoming than others when that isn't the, it really isn't the case. And it depends upon almost a willing ignorance or refusal to acknowledge and engage with the experiences of people in urban or in rural settings. So for example, there's a film titled Farm Boys that looks at many, the experiences of many uh, gay identifying people in rural settings, farm boys. And this they, they describe how uh, their homosexual identities were very different from the homosexual identities of urban people, where some thought that urban gay men were too effeminate. So there was a t entirely different ideas about masculinity among rural, queer, or in this case, gay, uh, gay people. So in Halberstam's words, the rural context allows for a different array of acts, practices, performances, and identifications something lost that when we only focus on urban places and people. And yeah, that's going to put us here into chapter three, which we'll pick up with next time where we're going to go into more detail about uh, Brandon Tina's murder and the murder of his two uh, friends, going through the different perspectives from the film Boys Don't Cry and uh, looking at mostly the film Boys Don't Cry and really the problem with the representation of Brandon and Brandon's life in that film. But yeah, uh, I hope that this has been informative. If you like what I did, you can like, share, subscribe, leave a good review, uh, and uh, catch you next Saturday. Or maybe before then, I'll pop in with something sometime midweek. We'll see. I don't have much time these days, but I'll try. And yeah, on that note, take care.